0: I can't tell you uh, her name, but I can tell you about the phone call that she received. And it's a phone call that maybe some of you have had. I hope you, I hope you never get it if you haven't had it. But it was her father who called uh, that day. And he said, uh, very succinctly, he said, honey, your brother and his wife and their children have been tragically killed in a car accident. They're gone. And your mother is not taking this well and it would really be good if you could get here just as soon as possible. And there were two problems though. Uh, The first problem was they were halfway across the country. And the second problem was that she and her husband and their children were in the process of moving, and half of their stuff was packed away in boxes, and the other half was just it was just a mess. There was a pile there in the corner of, of clothes, and then there were dirty dishes all over the kitchen, and there were toys all over. The kids were out and about, and uh, it was just chaotic. Um, and so she had a hard time focusing. She would go to one task and then, you know, leave that one and get to another. And she just could not stay focused. She said, "I felt like my body was lead. I felt like my feet were uh, like concrete." And um, people called. People called, and they said, "You know, if there's anything I can do to help, you know, I but I didn't know what." I really needed it was hard to try to respond to that kind of, of well intentioned, but just a, a vague offer. And and then the doorbell rang. And she opened the door and it was her next door neighbor, Mark. And the first words out of his mouth, I've come to clean your shoes. She said, What? He said, I've come to clean your shoes. When my mother died, uh, it took me hours getting the kids' shoes cleaned and polished for the funeral service. And so, give me your shoes. Give me all of your shoes, Uh, not just the good ones. And he even brought his own shoe shine kit with him. And so he marched right into the kitchen. Mark did, and and found a, a pan of hot soapy water and and the. Shoes were filthy. I mean, they'd been mud caked. The kids had been outside, but there they were in the mud room. He gathered them all, all the shoes, and piled them there in the kitchen and uh, put them on a newspaper. And he just began scrubbing and polishing. And she later said that when she and her husband saw Mark quietly working there in the kitchen, that it gave her focus. And she then started paying attention to the jobs that needed to be done. One at a time, and and finally she got the kids even bathed and got them to bed. And she went back downstairs, and a mark had left, and all that was left there was along the wall a line of uh, polished, shined shoes. And there were difficult days ahead, it was hard the services and everything but she said that that picture of mark quietly serving there squatting on the kitchen floor there cleaning the shoes just gave her a sense of peace gave their family a sense of peace and focus and now now she said when i hear of someone who has hurt i, I no longer give a a well-intentioned but vague offer of help if there's anything I can do. I try to think about what the person needs. She said, I try to think about maybe they need their yard mode. Maybe they need a meal. Maybe they need someone to house sit during the service. And then when that person says to me, how did you know I needed that? She says, because one day a man by the name of Mark cleaned my shoes. Now, that's the kind of support that we need to be able to lean on, especially when the storms strike. And um, people who will come into our lives, and people who will say, you know, "I'm, I'm here to clean your shoes. I'm here to offer tangible, specific support. And I want you to lean on that kind of support. And do you have that kind, or is there someone in your life that you've been able to lean on when those difficulties, when those storms have come? Um, we've been studying the book of Job here the past few weeks and we've learned how uh, Job has been, uh, (laughs) well, you know, his friends show up and they did really well. They did really well for seven days and then they started talking. And then that was where the problems began. And Job has lost everything He's lost his home, his business. It just it's Inexplicably, he was the greatest sheik of all of the sheiks in the east. And he was a godly man. We know that. Job 1 and 2. He, he's blameless. He up, he's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. And all of this has now been taken away from him. And, and nobody tells Job. And nobody has told his friends. And not only has Job lost all of his possessions, he's lost his health. And here he sits on top of the city dump, the ash heap, the dung heap, if you will. He has lost everything and he's oozing, uh, boils which ooze and he's just in a mess and his friends come and he explodes with grief after seven days and then his friends try to, they try to say, well, let's figure out what the problem is. And they're just absolutely convinced that Job has sinned. That's why he's suffering. This, uh, this fossilized, dogmatic version of the law of the harvest... You suffer, Job, because you've sinned. And today, we're going to hear from the third friend, the third comforter, a fellow by the name of Zophar. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of Job, chapter 11. It's on page 365 of your church Bibles, 365. We've heard from Eliphaz, we've heard from Bildad, and now we're going to hear from Zophar. And... The question that I'm thinking as I'm looking through these verses is simply this. When you experience unexplained suffering, who are you going to lean on? Who are you going to lean on? Hmm? Who are you going to lean on? And we're going to hear Zophar tell Job, who Zophar thinks he ought to lean on. And that's one part of our message. And then we're going to hear who Job leans on. <laughs> and that's part two. And I'd like to just go ahead and jump to part two, but we need, to, we need to take a walk through these verses. Beginning with chapter 11, verse one. Then Zophar, the Naamathite, replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless, and I am pure in your sight. That's in the Hebrew. (laughs) Yes, ask Ken Cuffey. Oh, how I wish that God would speak that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Um, the next time I'm in the emergency room, don't send far, okay? <laughs> Just leave him in the car with the dog, Windows up. I don't want to hear from Zophar. I mean, look, look at what he says here in verse 6. Know this. God has even forgotten some of your sin. He's even, what's that saying? Job, God's, God's being light on you. I mean, he's being compassionate with you. You know, I know you've lost your house and lost your possessions and lost your kids and lost your health, but man, come on. Surely he, verse 11, surely he recognizes deceitful men. And when he sees evil, does he not take note? Job, you are evil. You're deceitful. God has taken note and you're not, li- you're not listening, Job, verse 12. But a witless man can no more become wise than a wild donkey's colt can be born a man. Job, Mr. Compassion right there. They, these guys have one club in their golf bag and they're just swinging it. That's it. They've got one. It's a piano with one key. And they're just hitting it over and over and over again. Again. They have taken this generally true principle of the law of the harvest, they, but they fossilized it and, and made it into this dogmatic uh, assertion because, see, they haven't read. Chapters 1 and 2. They don't know what we know. That Job is blameless and upright and he fears God and he shuns evil. But yet they see his circumstances and then they just work backwards from that. And they're not budging one bit. And so so it's no surprise for Zophar to just mouth what the other two have mouthed previously in verses 13 through 19. Yet if you devote your heart to him... And stretch out your hands to him. If you put away the sin that is in your hand. And allow no evil to dwell in your tent. Then. There it is. If. Then. Law of the harvest. Then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble recalling it. Only as the water's gone by. Job, just play by the rules and it'll all be water underneath the bridge. Life will be brighter than noonday. Darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there's hope. You will look out about you and take your rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court. Your favorite Job. You've sinned, that's why you're suffering. Now repent and you'll get it all back. Come on, that's how it works. You have B. this law of the harvest. Huh? And what Zophar says here, you know, Zophar shows up on Job's front porch. But instead, like neighbor Mark saying, I'm here to clean your shoes, Zophar shows up and says, Job, your shoes are dirty. You need to clean them. Here's the instructions. (laughs) Bye. That's what he does. That's it. You you, You need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. You need to fast more. You need to journal more. You, you, you need to have more faith. How many of us have heard that either in our situations or somebody else's situations? Where, where, where somebody's going through a struggle and the other person listens and then says, well, you know, they just start going through this checklist. Well, you maybe need to pray more. Maybe you need to read your Bible more. Maybe you need to do devotions more. Maybe you need, And it's just like, it's, how many of us have heard that kind of, really, that, that is, that's a version of the a fossilized law of the harvest, that if you will just put out more, then your circumstances will change. How many of us, I've said that. I've said, you know, come into my office and we listen, and I'm in this storm, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, uh, uh, things will get better if you just need to pray more. If you just need to, why? Because, you know, come to the pastor, he's got to be the answer man. Man, that's of no help whatsoever. It, it's really not. And I'm just concerned that somehow we think that, and I'm not, church family, I'm not saying that we ought not pray. <laughs> pray. Read your Bible. Psalm 1 blesses the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Read your Bible. Love your Bible. Be in community with other believers. But listen, if you think that by doing those religious activities, that that somehow will obligate the Almighty to change your circumstances or situation, then, wait a minute, who is it about then? Who is it about? And, well, since I'm on a roll here, I might as well just share with you... You know, several years ago, there was a book that just took the Christian world, at least in this country, by storm, right? It's a book titled The Prayer of Jabez. You know, you bought the book. I did too. All right, let's talk about that for a minute. Well, let's talk about the prayer. First chronicles four ten Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, "Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory, let your hand be with me and, and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain, and God granted His request. You know what? if you pray that prayer I mean, That's wonderful. It is a prayer. It's a biblical prayer. Jabez prayed it, and God granted his request. My concern is not with this prayer but with the marketing campaign that resulted in that book on my shelf and perhaps in yours that if somehow I can just say this prayer in the right way enough times that I can kind of give this incantation that will then obligate the Almighty to enlarge my territory and and, and then I will have a pain-free life and so, you know, and then what happens if that doesn't happen? See, the assumption that, oh, there must, I'm not doing it right. I've got to figure out the right way to do it. Do I need to do it in Hebrew? You know, do I need to write it? Into, how do I need to do it? Just help me get the technique down so that I can get the results that I want. And who's God then? Who's God then? And... And so, yes, all right, pray the prayer. But here's the deal. Listen, I I don't know this for absolute fact, but my guess is that Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was very well aware of that prayer. He knew where it was in the Bible. And yet he was hanged by Nazi Germany. Yeah. He was not free from pain. And yet, at the same time, was not the kingdom enlarged because pastors like me recommend his books to their congregations. You see? You see? What Zophar wants us to do is to lean on the labor of moralism. Do more. Pray more. Journal more. Fast more and then by well you know if you just had more faith well what would happen if you just had more faith in your mind's eye what are you thinking of if you just if you if you just had more faith would every morning be sunny and seventy is that it if you just had more faith would parking spaces miraculously appear in front of shopping centers is that is that what we're thinking if you just had more faith you could just throw away your wellbutrin is that what you're thinking. I wouldn't need my high blood pressure medication if I just had more faith. Really? Well, maybe you should pray and remember to take your medication. Maybe you should pray and go ahead and have that back surgery. <laughs> you know, maybe. See what I'm saying? This this notion that if I, if I can just well then then what if I just had more faith than what my, see often is if I just had more faith than my unfavorable circumstances would turn into favorable circumstances. And that's exactly what Satan was accusing Job of before God because he was saying, God, Job's pious because it pays, but take it all away and he'll curse your face. And Job didn't. His faith was pure. And he wasn't gonna have anything to do with what Zophar had to say. In fact, this is so fascinating. Huh. Job kind of makes a transition here at the end of uh, uh, chapter twelve, and he. Uh, well, uh, I don't want to get there yet. I want. I want to tell you how he responded, to Zophar. This is great. Chapter twelve, verse two. He's biting. He's. He's got. There's a lot of sarcasm here. <laughs> 12.2 says, doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. Oh, you're so smart. Oh, thank God I'm in the presence of such wise sages. Yes, wisdom will die with you. I have a mind as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know all of these things? And then he says this, look at verse five. He says, fellas, you know, the views, pre- yeah, how's the view from the sky boxes, huh? How's the view from the luxury suites, huh? Chapter 12, verse 5, men at ease have contempt for misfortune as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. You guys are at ease. It must be easy for you. And and here you have contempt for guys like me. How's the view from the cheap seats, huh? And, and, And it's a point we must not miss here because if you are not suffering, And then you ask the question, "Why is there suffering? Why is it?" To you, that's just an academic question. That that's just an intellectual question, you know. But if you're in it, then that's not just an academic question. It's it's more like a journey. It's more like an expedition. It's it's the difference between asking the question, "How do you get to Mars? How do we get to Mars?" versus, "How does Apollo 13 get home?" Remember that fated mission, Apollo 13? The service module exploded in space. And now they're, Houston, we have a problem. We have a serious problem. And they had to use the lunar module as a life raft to get them back home. Now there they are, lost in space. What do you need? Well, do I need information? Well, yeah, that's, that's fine. I mean, a map would be great. They didn't need a map. They knew where the earth was. What they needed was support. They needed a team. They needed people who would come around them. They needed someone who would stand on their front porch and say, I'm here to clean your shoes. Not you need to clean your shoes. Here's the directions, help yourself. They needed that. See? And and so Job is just saying, Look, you're not helping. And at this point, Job stops talking to his friends. (laughs) I mean, it's just stop talking. And he's, because he's not going to lean on their moralism. And in chapter 13, here's what I want you to see. He starts talking to someone else. Chapter 13, verse 20 says, "Oh, grant me these two things, O oh God." And then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me." Stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you you hide your face from me and consider me your enemy? Will you you torment a windblown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? For you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth. You fasten my feet in shackles. You keep a close watch on all my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. That's how in the ancient world they identified slaves. They would literally mark up the soles of their feet. That's how they were identified. And Job, Job no longer speaks to his friends anymore here. He just he doesn't want to talk to them anymore. He wants to talk to God. And this is where we see a, a crucial difference in uh, Job's life versus his friend's life. And it's one uh, that a philosopher who happens to be a Christian named Peter Kreeft mentions. And it's, it's worth noting. Peter Kreeft says, Job is a classic example of messy spirituality. Job's friends are a classic example of dead orthodoxy. Job talks to God. His comforters talk about God. Job's relationship with God is about a life or death passion. Job's friends are about correct wording. Job's love for God is infected with extreme frustration. Job's friend's love for God is infected with extreme indifference. And here is what Kreeft says that got my attention. He says, Job stays married to God and throws the dishes at him. Job's friends have a polite non marriage with separate bedrooms and separate vacations. See, that's what Job's friends are offering. You lean on this polite non marriage. And this one, Job said, I'm not gonna have anything to do with that because, because it's gonna be all or nothing between me and God. It's going to be it's going to be all or nothing and he just stops listening to them and and it it really needs to be all or nothing in our walk too. And and I, I know that I've gotten some feedback and it's, and it's a fair concern. Some of you have said, you know, well, it just, just does seem that some of the things that Job says about God are just almost border on being sacrilegious. Please understand, the man has oozing boils, aching bones, and bad breath to boot. I mean, he's hurting. and And you know what? So are some of us here too. And all of us are here. All of us. We have... Folks who have lost their marriage and lost their health and lost family members. And we have folks who have survived the storms um, with their marriage intact, their health intact, and their family intact. And then we have some who right now, today, it could go either way. It could go either way. All, All of us are here all of us are here and God is sovereign over all of us you see in Acts chapter 12 I mean the Lord allowed King Herod to take the life of the apostle James but the Lord also allowed the apostle Peter to be spared and God is sovereign over both In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, it says, women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. God is sovereign over both. And and Job says, "I I don't get this. I don't understand this. I didn't read chapters one and two. But I'm not going to stop leaning on the love of God. That's what I'm going to, I'm I'm not going to stop leaning on the love of God. And and this, this comes out crystal clear in chapter 14. If only you would hide me in the grave, chapter 14, verse 13. If only you would hide me in the grave. And conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal. That's resurrection. I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long. For the creature, and that word "long" is a very intense word, intense word, long, almost, almost, uh, almost lust, long for the creature your hands have made. Job says, "I, I'm not going to lean on Zophar's labor of moralism. I am going to lean." Even though I don't understand what this is all about, I am not, I'm gonna lean on the love and the longing of God for the creature his hands have made. And verse 16 says, Surely surely, then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. I read something this past week by a pastor named Tim Keller And this is so significant, especially having read these verses. If you think the Bible is all about you, about what you must do and how you must live and how you have to do everything in order to get the blessing, then you don't need a Messiah to die for your sins. All you need is just rules. He says there are two ways and only two ways to read the Bible. You can read the Bible as if it's all about you and what you must do, and what you have to run around doing in order to get the blessing, or you can read every part of the Bible as if it's all about him and what he has done for you. Is it all about you, or is it all about him? Zophar says, Job, let's make it about you. And Job says, no, I'm not doing that. It's going to have to be about God. And I don't understand why this has happened. I don't understand. I don't get it. But I don't have to get it. I don't have... And... and, God, if you need to put me in the grave, then okay. After all of this has passed, you set the time. You set the time. You will call. If you call me, I'm going to come out of that grave. You call me and I will answer you. Because I will not stop believing in your love for me. And if you are suffering and you don't know why, And you say, where did Job get that kind of faith? You know, I, I don't know that I can answer that. But what I can know is that we can know that God loves us. We can know that. No matter what you're suffering. Because you see, centuries later, after Job, Jesus himself stood before a tomb in John chapter 12. His friend Lazarus had died He'd been in the tomb four days. Jesus said, "Take the stone away." But Master, he's been dead four days. He will stink. Jesus said, "Take the stone away." See, take this. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. You know, Jesus wept. See how he loved him. And here's the thing: Jesus knew that if he called Lazarus out of the grave the crucifixion was set because his enemies were all around. And how, do you, how else do you get rid of someone who can raise the dead other than you just have to kill him? But Jesus called his friend out of that tomb. He knew that he was gonna have to put himself in the tomb for Lazarus to come out. And it was set. And he did. He did. See, Jesus did the hard service Job 14, 14. Jesus did not keep track of our sin. Jesus took our offenses and he sealed them up in a bag and he covered over. Why? Because he put himself in the tomb. And one day, one day, because Christ put himself in the tomb, he will call your name. If you've trusted him, if you have put your hope in the Son of God, he will call your name. He will call. He will call Jerry. He will call Ada. And he will call Brent. And he will call Violet. He will call. And we will come. Because of his love, his unstoppable love. And you know, all of the major world religions talk about you know, some sort of afterlife. I mean, there's, there's nothing in dispute about that. But All the major world religions, they, they, they talk about the afterlife as kind of a consolation for the sufferings of this life. Christianity is not that way. The Bible doesn't teach consolation in the afterlife. The Bible teaches resurrection. The Bible teaches the how, how all that is bad will come untrue in the new heavens and the new earth. C.S. Lewis wrote about this when he said, They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And that is why, at the end of all things, when the sun rises, the blessed will say, We have never lived anywhere else except heaven. One day, in the new heavens and the new earth, in new bodies, we're going to recognize one another and we will say, we'll, it'll be so glorious, we will say to one another, have we ever lived anyplace else? Have we ever lived anyplace else? And why? It is because of the resurrection of the one who rose never to die again and By his power, he will call us. And that's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, there's the call, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And Paul concludes that Magnificent anthem by saying, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Oh, if you are suffering and you don't know why, lean on this. Lean on the love of God. I want us to close with a prayer before we receive communion. is a prayer that was spoken by uh, Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, it was thought that Ignatius was a student of the Apostle John. Think about that. And he was martyred um, for his faith by the Romans. Uh, uh, ripped to pieces by uh, wild animals. I mean, in fact, he he even said, the nicer I treat the Roman soldiers, the the more wicked they are to me. (laughs) But he leaned on the love of God as he prayed this prayer. I'll pray it, and then we'll have communion. I am God's wheat. May I be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, until I become the fine white bread that belongs to Christ.